great, thanks. I just want to encourage y'all to, uh, that if you're kind of going, okay, I came to this Bible study, this is not exactly what I thought, all these people being such wimps and screw-ups and God's people being so just awful, and this is not, you know, the Psalms or even the Proverbs where I can see how it's impacting my life. It's very practical. So I just want to encourage you to stick with it. I want to encourage y'all to to take God at his word in Timothy when he says, nothing comes back empty. My word does not come back empty. Everything in God's word is used for instruction, for reproof, for correction, all these things. The same thing that we think about Jesus' words in the New Testament are true in this and the Old Testament. So I just want to give a plug for the good old Old Testament because I know it can be hard and can be a challenge, but it's also true. It's overwhelming, and here we go again. This is crazy. Um, you know, we're, we're right back where we start every week, and I told my husband, like, he's like, are you excited? I'm like, first of all, I'm thinking, excited? may not be the right word, but I was too tired to come up with a better adjective. So, um, and it's like, yeah, I'm excited about what we're talking about, but it feels like it's the same lesson every week. And maybe that's how God feels <laughs> about us. <laughs> it's the same lesson every week. Kind of like if you have children and you're like, how many times do I have to tell you to pick up your toys or to please, please brush your teeth? Like you would think we would have gotten that one by high school, you know, but you know, there we go. Okay, so here we are, except this time, the Midianites are the ones that are oppressing God's people. And we'll read in just a second. But basically, there are three chapters. We're not going to read all that. Um, but God's people have gone off the rails. God has sent the Midianites. And the way they're oppressed this time is even worse. Because instead of last week where village life was disrupted and, you know, you couldn't really live like you normally could kind of like with covid like we're here but we can't really do our normal thing this time this week they're having to go hide in the mountains can you imagine the enemy is coming and you've had to dig a hole out of a hill so you and your kids and your in-laws can all be safe and hidden from the midianites the other thing that's happening is the, say the Israelites do their crops, they take care of their animals, they do all the things they're supposed to do to feed their family, and right as harvest time comes, here come the Midianites. And it was like, they, I think the word is like they were like locusts. Their camels were like swarms of insects. Like it's just overwhelming. And they come in and like locusts, terrorize, take over, destroy everything you worked for. So even your normal work would be like, what a waste of time. But at the same time, you had to do something to eat. And what's interesting and what, us, what I want us just to hold is that remember why God gave them the promised land. What did God promise them? What was it going to be like for them? Well, it was going to be a place where they belonged and could own and could have stability. They were going to enjoy milk and honey. It was going to be overflowing with milk and honey. 
that is like the best kind of food. That's not like peanut butter and jelly meals. That's like, we're gonna have steak and you know truffle fries every day. We're gonna have salad, fruit that's exotic that someone else has peeled and cut up for us. Cause that is my idea of a high meal where I did not have to make it. That's what the promised land meant to them. And that is exactly what's been taken away from them. And just to make sure y'all know that this is not God being mean or slamming them and just whatever, is I want us to look really quickly in Deuteronomy 28, okay? This is when God has rescued his people out of Egypt and, uh, and married them, basically. It's like he has rescued them, just like the fairy tale. He's gotten Rapunzel out of the tower. He's kissed Cinderella, uh, Snow White and woken her up, and now they're married. And, and then he gives them, then after he loves them, adopts them, marries them, whatever relationship you picture, then he says, okay, and here's what married life's going to look like. Here's what living in my family looks like. This is how I'm going to show love to you and how you're going to show love to me. And then in that, you'll see if you have like dark writing in your Bible, there are blessings on obedience and curses on disobedience. Okay, so say in verse 15, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And he starts listing them. And if you go down to verse 29, and you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness, you shall not prosper in your ways. You shall only be oppressed and plundered continually and no one shall save you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall lie with her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but shall not gather its grapes. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Your donkey shall be violently taken away from before you and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies and you shall have no one to rescue them. Okay, here's exactly what is happening with the Midianites. And God told them, got this in their Bible. God has said, this is what it's going to look like. And so they really should have known better. And as Tim Keller says, they are actually experiencing the poverty of idolatry. Okay, the poverty, the poverty of idolatry. Um, I, we don't have time, but look at Psalm 81, verses 8 through 12 later. And you see the same pattern of I've given you stuff, you've not loved me, and I'm sending you things. I'm sending you the consequences to drive you back to me. So, they're hiding in caves. They're having the poverty that comes from them worshiping other gods and leaving God. So, God responds. How does he respond? Well, he sends three things. First, he sends a sermon. Then he sends himself. And then he sends a wimp. And what I want us, and this may not work, but I'm going to try anyway. Uh, I don't know if you have teenage drivers. 
Um, or if you've ever remembered you being a physician, and this is my nightmare, is that I have car trouble on the highway. And so say, for instance, one of my children, say this would happen, never would happen, I'm sure. Uh, they call and they're like, I'm stuck on the side of the highway. There's something going on with my, the hood of my car. There's all this smoke coming up. And, uh, and dad answers. And he goes, was there a light on? Was there an indicator light blinking? And yeah, that little oil lamp thing has been on for a week. Well, in my house, the first thing that's going to come is the sermon. Okay, on that one. Okay, which is how many times have I told you if the oil light comes on, stop? How many times? Because and it burns up your engine. It's not just an oil problem. It's an engine problem. It requires a whole new engine if you drive your car without oil. This is, this is the sermon I've heard, so that's why I know about it. <laughs> Forget the kids. Um, so imagine your child calling. Imagine the Israelites are the kid on the side of the road. And instead of daddy just showing up and fixing it, daddy just does the sermon first. That's kind of a shocker for us. And let's just read what God says first, okay? Because this is, this is kind of different to me. Uh, chapter 6, verse 7. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet, not a, not a judge, to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. One of the commentators, Ralph Davis, says this is an unfinished sermon. Okay, and don't you kind of feel it? You're reading it, and he's, he's going, okay, look. I rescued you. I loved you. I brought you out, and just, just look at what they've traded. They were slaves and under oppression in Egypt. God takes them out of oppression into this land. God drives out the people. He says, I'll take this land and be driven and have all these bad people out. They don't do it, Remember? And what have they traded? Now they're oppressed by a new group of people. Not the Egyptians, but now the Midianites. If, why, why do we do this? God rescues us from our sins, and we, tra we, we trade back in, and I'd rather be oppressed again than obey God. We can look at this and go, y'all are dumb, but I need to look in the mirror because I'm doing the same pattern. But he lists in the sermon what he's done and what they've done. I've loved you, I've rescued you, I gave you this land. You have gone to the God of the Amorites. You have gone to these other gods. And you kind of hear this, like you kind of feel like the next thing's coming is like the big all caps, therefore. Therefore, I'm sending down bolts of lightning. Therefore, I'm kicking you out. Therefore, and there's no therefore. So it's like the, it's like if the dad is on the phone with his daughter who's crying on the side of the road with the oil light and she's not done what she was supposed to do. And the dad's saying, 
I told you to check your oil. I told you this is what happens. He gives the whole thing of this is how your engine works and you're just sitting there listening. And then daddy pulls up. God himself, the angel of the Lord, is Jesus showing up in that time. It's, it looks like, like Gideon's like sees a person. This is kind of weird for us. It's called a theophany, which, which means there's an appearance of God before, like before Jesus was born. You see these times in God's word where this angel shows up. And the way you know if it's a normal angel, if there is such a thing, a normal generic angel and difference between angel of the Lord is if the angel accepts worship. And we see that happen here with Gideon. He makes a meal, he slaughters a goat, makes unleavened bread, does the whole thing. And the angel takes his stick and touches it and it goes poof. And then the angel of the Lord disappears and Gideon knows, oh no, I've seen God. I'm going to die. But God sends himself. So that is in verses 11 through, uh, well, we'll just read it because we got to talk about some of the other stuff in there too. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Orpah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Okay, you almost wonder if he's being sarcastic because he's hiding, threshing wheat, doing just this menial work, hiding from the Midianites. And that's how he's greeted, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why? Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. Then he says, I'll wait. He does the whole goat thing, um, puts the staff, poof, he's gone. Verse 22, Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it is still in Orpah of the Abyssalites. And then he tells them, you need to tear down the altar that your father's built to Baal. And um, so we'll get to get that in just a second. So, so God sends, him, sends himself. And what is the first thing Gideon says? Why? Why is this happening? And you kind of want to go, did you not pay attention to the prophet that I sent earlier? You know, but God does not do that. And it's so ironic that when we're in hard times, we don't just get the obvious truth that God has said in Deuteronomy. 
that he's saying by a prophet, that he says to us in our Bible reading, in our Bible studies, in our sermons, in our podcasts of sermons, things that are true. It's not hard to, to get to the truth. It's hard to see it and embrace it. And we see that. And there's not been repentance among the people. There's been regret because they should know how to change it. All they had to do was start tearing down altars. So they obviously have not done that. And so God, after he goes himself, now this is where my metaphor may lose because I don't know how many of y'all have watched Andy Griffith in your life, but he sends Gomer the mechanic, okay? He sends the goofball. He sends the guy that has a, like, you're sent to Gideon? Gideon, the guy that's hiding, the wimp, the scaredy cat, the one that's the least of his father's house. And we see this pattern also in Scripture. God takes the weakest thing so he can look the most powerful, because he is. So he sends just the right true hero that he needs for this. He's weak because of his family status. He's the cautious type. He constantly saying, God, prove to me that you're really you. It's not that he's saying, I don't believe you'll use me. He wants to know that the confidence he's going to have to have is really coming from God himself. You know, that's okay. God, if God is patient with Gideon, we're going to be patient with Gideon. If God is patient with Gideon, that means he's going to be patient with me when I face things that are really hard. So what, say, is a weakness you carry? Maybe you go, I don't know a lot about the Bible. I'm kind of new to this Bible stuff. Why would God use me in talking to my neighbor? I don't know. I didn't, I've never heard of judges before now. What, you know, maybe you're not very quick on your feet. Maybe you're the type like me that thinks of the best answer in the shower the next day <laughs> than when I'm in the situation. Maybe you're just shy. Maybe, maybe you're, maybe you're, you see this family tension and you know that whatever your mama says impacts you. So you're scared to take her on about something that's wrong in the family. All these things are true weaknesses that we have. Sometimes we're weak compared to the mission ahead of us. He had to tear down a family altar first thing. Okay, can you imagine what is the family altar in your life? Maybe it's you're not going to send your children to the school. Maybe it's you're not going to live in the neighborhood. Maybe it's you're not going to go to the church. That's your family altar. Maybe it's you're not going to take that job. Maybe it's that you're going to not be in that profession. Maybe it's that you're going to be that kind of Christian. What's the family altar that you have to tear down? Because that to me is really scary. I'm a firstborn. I wanted to make my parents happy. I wanted them to be pleased with me. I wanted to feel their approval. And if I ever felt like I needed to do something different from that, that is scary. And that's why I think Jesus says, are you willing to hate your family? in comparison to how you love me. What is priority in your life? 
and you may have some bad, bad enemies. Maybe it's not a, a family altar, but Gideon, the army he's up against, it describes them as locusts, the camels, the everything. It's just awful. It's overwhelming. What are the, what is the huge enemy in your life? An addiction, a secret that just holds you under its power, a secret sin. Um, maybe it's that the enemy is our culture and you feel very weak in light of how to, to stand in some circles where you care what people think about you when you need to defend scripture and say what's right. You know, the other thing that's crazy about his mission was God told him to make it weaker. His side of it to be Gideon, you're weak, and I want you to have a weak <coughs> army. So he went from 32,000 to 300. That's like, I think, that's like, whew, I don't even know what that's like. That's, that's like going to a battle with your hand tied behind your back and you know, your feet tied together and blindfolded. It's crazy. So what big ask is God asking you to do right now? Do you feel weak in its shadow? Good. Good. Then you are where Gideon is, right where God has taken him and wants him to act. But this is the sad thing. He also has weak allies. If you see, he runs into his own people. When he's chasing the kings, he says, can you give us some bread? My 300 people are dying. They're like, uh, no, because we don't know how this is going to go, and we're not making the Midians mad. If we help you, your little dinky 300 men, you think you're going to beat them? No. And another town, help us. No. So even his own allies, his own people were weak. But all of this fits just right into God's mo of how he does things remember elijah when he had to sacrifice uh prove that is baal the real god or is god the real god and they both had altars and baal's prophets did all their song and dance and lightning never came down and struck it and then it was elijah's turn he poured water all over the wood he made a trough of water he asked god and immediately god licked up the water with flame he loves a doused competition he loves to be the underdog because it proves how powerful he is. And so the second point is we get to see the strength of a wimp because we get to see where Gideon's success really comes from. We um, are going to read in chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well at Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who were with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And he goes on, and whoever drank like a dog goes home, people, or something. You know, it's just, don't read into that. It's just a way to determine how many people stay and go. It doesn't mean anything theological. It's just 
you're drinking water, okay? Um, gets down to 300, okay? But then in verse 9, it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So he goes down there with because he is scared. Like, I love it. It's not, if you're scared, then get a grip. If you're scared, then just, you can do this by yourself. I'm tired of proving myself to you. God doesn't act like I would act. He acts like God. He says, okay, are you scared? He was. Go down and I've got something that will really help you. I want you to eavesdrop on Midian. And he hears one little dinky, like, low-level soldier talking to another about his dream. He's like, yeah, I had this dream where a loaf of bread fell down into the camp and knocked my tent over. And the other Midianite goes, well, you know what that means? That means we're doomed. And it made Gideon pumped. And he takes that 300 ragtag army who drank however way they drank, and he divides them into three groups of 100 with like torches and pitchers and stuff. And they don't even attack. God totally, they like make a bunch of noise. And the Midianites just all bump into each other and kill each other and go crazy. They did not even have to point a sword. And then all they had to do is start chasing them. They just start chasing them to clean up the defeat. Okay, so what's he give? What does he give a wimp? This is what God gives us as a wimp. So put yourself in Gideon's shoes. First of all, he gives him himself. He gives him a person of God. This worship that he did with the food, it leads to assurance that God is the God of peace. And this confidence, this confidence comes from seeing God and knowing your relationship with, with him is he is for you. There's peace there. And so that's what you need to get to church for, to feel more at peace with God, to feel confident in God, to see God. That's why you read God's words, you see God, and you're like, oh, yeah, this is who God is. It's not who I think he is or the world tells me who he is. It's who God himself says who he is. Second thing he gets is assurance. Um, he gets these, the fleece things, you know, you've heard maybe this story of, he says, okay, if you're who you say you are, can I put out a fleece and will it be dry and everything else be wet and then vice versa the next time? And God says, sure. I mean, God is so sweet and patient and gentle and he gets the sign he needs to go, is this really God talking to me? Now you may go, that's it. I'm going to buy a fleece sweater and I'm putting it out tomorrow. I need some decisions. We don't need that fleece. Guess what we have that Gideon did not have? We have the indwelling spirit. We have the full word of God. We have the signs of the relationship. Actual signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We have church. A fellowship of saints. To, to help us remember God and who he is and their stories of how God has helped them. We have all of this so that we don't need to lay a fleece out.
But this is what we do learn from the flea story, that this is how God responds to requests for unbelief. Patiently, kindly, he answers those prayers. Mark 9, 24, if you fast forward in your mind to when Jesus is being just hounded and there's a daddy and his son, since he was little, has had a demon make him mute and he throws himself into water, he throws himself into the fire. And just picture if one of your kids did that, how disrupted your family would be, how exhausted you would be, how scared you would be, how you would do anything. Even go to Jesus, this this prophet, this guy that's been rumored to heal people. <clears throat> and Jesus says, believe. And what does he say back? Help my unbelief. This is Mark 9, 24 in the Old Testament. Gideon is like, help my unbelief. What is it that you're having us trouble believing right now? That God is sovereign? That he cares about you when your child is going through this? When your marriage is in this pickle? When your family is fighting? When your finances are a disaster? When you're not sure if your business is going to make it? All those things. What do you need belief to remember that God is good and with you? But then he gives them, like, like we just read about, this lanyard, this extra assurance of going down and hearing the dream. And God sometimes sends us into scary places like a Midianite camp. I mean, that would have been scary to do. But I would have had to weigh, how scared am I? Scared enough to believe or scared enough to go into the enemy camp to get confidence? And sometimes God takes you into scary places to build your confidence. Because in that way, you're going to know his character better. Do you, uh, have you ever gone through something with somebody? It could be anything from a field trip with a bunch of third graders that you survived together to, you know, you went through childbirth and you compare notes. I mean, something traumatic, big T, little T, whatever you pick. Um, and you feel so connected to them. That's how it is with God. When you feel like God is with you during something hard, you feel much more connected to him. Philippians 2, 8 through 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his, Jesus's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is the other thing that helps me have assurance when I'm facing something scary. It's the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is what Philippians is telling us that we have. That is strong power. That's the kind of power that trumps my wimpiness. Any trouble you're facing is lower than death's power. It's powerful. It's scary. But death is the worst thing. The most powerful thing. And Jesus beat it down at the cross. And when he was resurrected, it was proof that he had beaten it. God knows you're weak. God is not angry when I say to him like a little kid, Father, I know you love me, but I'm having trouble trusting you on this one. This one, I don't think I know what you're doing. I've said that to God. When recently, and this is also, I'm not going to just go into my whole story and I can tell you if you want to know the details, but it's nothing crazy. There's no life or death 
problem I'm having, but it was a big problem. And it was a problem that I couldn't fix and Lee couldn't fix it, which he's next up from me. So if he can't fix it, I'm in a real pickle. And I was really struggling and I'm struggling with, with God. Like I almost feel bad because of the type of problem it is would God really care? Because it's not really a big spiritual problem, but it is a spiritual problem in my heart because I'm having trouble trusting him. And I know God deserves me to trust him. I know God has proven himself to me so many times. Why can't I just act like he, like he's proven himself to me? So I, I'm, in, I'm ashamed. It's like, why am I not believing God? Not just because of what he says in the Bible, but because of how he's treated me all these years. So I had a friend who's like, I'm going to pray. I'm praying for you. I'm going to pray, actually, that God just gives me a verse to, to tell you. I'm like, great, somebody, you know. And she leaves me a Marco, if you know what that is, like a video text, what old people do. And so, uh, so uh, she said, you're not going to believe this. But I was praying for you, and the story that came to mind is from 2 Kings 6, and it's, it's about the act story of, and I don't know if you know this story, it is such a random story in the Old Testament, but I knew exactly, she was excited because she knows that I love, second, I love the Kings, and she was like, oh my gosh, this is so weird, and she said, this is the, like, this is the story, I went and read it, and it is about these priests or people of God, prophets of God, who need to... Oh, and by the way, the whole problem I'm having, if you haven't figured it out, is about my house that's been renovated, okay? Which I told myself at the beginning, I'm never going to complain about this house renovation because it is such a gift from God. Well, shame on me because that's all I've been doing ever since. And if you've ever renovated a house, you know exactly what the pain I'm in. So anyway... I am stuck in this house thing, but going is such a first world problem. It's such a first world problem. The, the guy in the story is building a bigger house, a bigger place. They had outgrown where they were living and they were trying to improve their situation. And, and his axe he was using flew off and fell into the water. And which we're like, okay, what's the big deal? Go get another axe not back then and the little guy prophet guy goes oh no he goes alas my lord it was borrowed and back then if you borrowed something and lost it I think you had to I didn't read up on my law but like you had to you pay it back threefold or something it was bad like it meant I am in some financial pickle juice okay and Elisha Elisha himself the you know, he would have been a TikTok star. If he's like Taylor Swift of that time, okay? He, he stops what he's doing. He's not all prophesizing and all this stuff. He's got more stuff to do than deal with this little low-level prophet whose acts just fell apart. And he goes, where did it, where, where, where did it go? He goes in the water. He says, he throws a stick in and the axe, which is iron or whatever metal, floats. That's the miracle. My problems are not solved but I serve a God who will stop what he's doing and make an axe head float because I'm in a pickle 
Now, I don't know what that looks like, and I may ta- it may take me a long time to see an axe head flick. And maybe God's not going to do that in my story, but it doesn't matter about it. The miracle, the axe head that's floating, is my spirit is not freaking out as much anymore. The miracle is not that my house is done or paid for or out of a pickle. The miracle is that I can sleep. The miracle is that I'm trusting God. The miracle is that I know God sees me. And it doesn't mean he solves my problems that I feel very acutely that actually have brought me more in relationship with him, that have actually let me see his character more, that have actually made in my weakness a strength that depends on him, not on me and my big plans to have my house the way I want it. Okay? Now, the other thing is he has the promise of, of God's presence with him. He said in 6.16, I will be with you. This is the trump card of the Bible. He's told Moses this. He's told Joshua this. He's going to tell the disciples when he's going up to heaven at the ascension, I am with you. The Holy Spirit living in us means he's with us. And what's that result? Confidence. It's a superhuman strength to obey. So he tears down his daddy's altar and, you know, all hell broke loose. He told, God told him to fight. He did with an army of 300. And he gives us too what we need to fight our battles. That may be a battle to forgive a friend. That may be a battle to love a husband who's been a jerk. And maybe to be faithful to a church that's disappointed you. It may be to swallow your pride and hang out with people that you don't know, that aren't your types, that don't appreciate you for all of you. (laughs) It may be you having to apologize for gossip, to give the money or anything else that you find yourself too weak to pull off. So the big question I ask, would you, to avoid stealing glory from God, which is why God says, I'm making it weak because they'll steal my glory. Would you willingly choose to be needy? Because that's what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12. I think I put that on your handout. Uh, Then he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Frankly, Lee and I are looking at ourselves going, boy, we would have never done this house if we had known. And we're looking at each other going, I will never do this again. You may quote me the next time you hear me about to do something like this. But would I sign up to do it knowing everything if it made God's glory bigger? I don't think so. So will you accept, would you even ask for, would you even embrace weakness if it meant God is more glorified? Try asking that for your children. That's hard. Weakness, we're just so scared of it. We want, we want, we want our kids We want to be protected and stable. 
But what we are forgetting, if we look straight at the story and don't see the pattern, God actually is stronger with you when you are weak and when your kids are weak. How else are you going to experience that kind of power? But just to wind up, unfortunately, our other judges usually end at this note with, and there was rest for 40 years. But the, uh, these, this judge gets another chapter or two. And we get to see what happens after the big win. And now we see the weakness of a hero. So we saw the strength of a wimp. But now we're going to see the weakness of someone who's actually a hero. And let's read in chapter 8, 22 through 28. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Okay, A plus answer, y'all. A plus. But then his feet do something different. <laughs> then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes that were on the kings of Midian and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. Y'all, the, the camels had jewelry. Just take that in. Okay. Then Gideon made it into an ephod. Okay, that's like a priestly garment thing. And set it up in his city, Orpah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Okay, so what happens here? Okay, we could, we talk, we could tell he was getting a little wonky in how he dealt with killing the people after they were offended him, that they didn't join Part of me gets it. Part of me's like, yeah, they should have helped Gideon. They had that coming. But there is a shift. Where's our weak, humble hero? Now he's mad. He's taking names and doing vengeance. And then, oh, no, no, no. I can't be king. God is king. But I will take what a king would take, which is all your gold, your earrings, and the camel stuff, and the robes of those kings. And then he takes all that gold and he makes this ephod, which in the priestly, this is part of the priestly line, uh, the priest role was to wear this. It had stones representing the 12 tribes and it had a little pocket with, I don't think they called it dice, but that's what I would call it, uh, the urin and thumen or something like that. And they would roll it or do something with it to where it would tell them what God wanted them to do. It was a way to discern God's will. Okay, who told him to start acting like a priest? God did not. And so you see this also pattern of what happens when you've been weak, God gives you success, and then you start getting off, off the rails because of pride, because of maybe... How many times have I said, this is a thankless job? So when there's time for thanks, I hoard it, I collect it, and I build something out of it. And now my lane line as judge has just, I've got another lane line of priest. 
And if you want to know God's will, come to my hometown because I've set up this thing that's real special. And that's exactly what happened. And it was a snare and it made them not worship God in the right way. Not the way God said. It wasn't idolatry, but it was, it, it kind of was because they were worshiping God in a way he had not set up. And it's, it's that much time from that to going off the rails again, worshiping other gods. So, application. Beware of pride and its insidious nature. Beware of getting away from the word that tells you what God wants you to do and no more and no less. Beware of getting out of the lane line, lane line God has given you. Has God asked you to serve in the church? Has he given you this wonderful task and you've rocked it? You're so good at it. But then you want to take all that you've learned and start tending to someone else's job at the church. Let me let you do that better. Look how we did it. You see the little, little shift? Where does that come from? Especially if you're weak. Sometimes we are weakest when we are strong because we've gotten our eyes off God. And God's warning to them was proven again. Once Gideon and God's people threw off Midian, they forgot their true hero, Yahweh. Once Gideon died, it was over again. And in this, what Gideon brought them, the rest of the Midianites, is the last time in, in this book we see God giving the land rest. Remember at the beginning, it's a cycle, but it's a cycle that goes down like the slinky that goes down, this is going down. We see the cracking up of the kingdom even before Gideon's death because the wheels have been coming off and now we get the therefore of that sermon because God is so merciful and God is in love with them, but God has dignity. And like a woman whose husband has cheated on her time and time and time again, even if she loves him, she looks at him and says, you cannot keep doing this. We're going to go to phase two of what this looks like. And God does. He doesn't give up on them. He's, they're still his people, but the consequences are going to get harder. Now, just in closing, this lesson has taught me that it is just really impossible to save myself. That even when I get a win, even when I, God proves himself to me and I get a win, I gravitate to pride, to fear and clinging to power, clinging to my role of helper at wherever. I'm important, I'm valuable, I get to feel needed, whatever it is for you. Respect that the triune me, myself and I trump God all the time. And just as the good Judge Gideon grasped at power and became weaker, so we do today. So that knowledge, let that make you weak. That's my closing word to you. Let that make you cautious like Gideon was. Let that make you know your own Achilles heel and go to God with it and say, God, I want to serve you. I want to serve my family. I want to serve my neighborhood. But I am prone to wonder. I am prone to screw it up, even in a success. Even when I do it, obey you. The next thing I do is step in it and let go. And the greatest thing 
the greatest thing is that God himself gives us the pattern of letting go. And I just want to close with Philippians 2, 5 through 9. That's also in your handout. It's talking about Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus made himself weak and is exalted. That's our pattern. Make yourself weak, women, and you will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, it is hard to trust. It's hard to trust when our common sense says this is not going to work. The world says if you want to fix something, here's what you do. And our, our belief is shaky. And I pray you give us strength that our weakness to obey. But then when we do, Lord, help us not be proud. Help us to remember who gave us the strength. Help us to still be at your feet, following Jesus' pattern of emptying ourselves out, knowing that one day we will be exalted with him. In his name we pray. Amen.